the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Phil McRae, who is an Executive Staff Officer and Associate Coordinator, Government and Research, with the Alberta Teachers Association and Adjunct Professor within the Faculty of Education at the University of Alberta, where he earned his PhD. He was the director of the internationally recognized Alberta Initiative for School Improvement, AZ, at the University of Alberta from 2005 to 2009. Phil's worked in many secondary and post-secondary educational contexts while living and teaching in the Middle East, Asia, Europe, and in Alberta with the Leftbridge Public School District and at Red Crow College with the Blood Tribe, Ghanai First Nation. The Blackfoot honored him with the name Aipapam, which means lightning. Phil is the past winner of the Alberta Excellence in Teaching Finalist Award, the University of Alberta Queen Elizabeth II Doctoral Scholar Award, Minister of Education's Innovation Award, and the ATA Provincial Educational Research Award. Now, despite all these accolades and achievements, when I asked Phil what I should say in this introduction... He simply said to say that he was a rancher from southern Alberta. We speak about a number of topics in our conversation with a focus on curriculum change, class sizes, and dealing with technology, and I really think everyone will take something away from our discussion. Now, if you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, or follow us on Twitter at Intersection Ed, or even on Facebook. We really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Dr. Phil McRae. Hello, Dr. McRae. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you this fine morning? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Ah, it's my pleasure. Let's get right into it. Uh, Alberta's going through what I think is probably their most important curriculum change in, in the history of education in Alberta. Um, people are starting to get a little bit worried about the scale of change and kind of want to start there with your take on where you think we're at with this new curriculum in Alberta and uh, your thoughts on that. So it certainly is um, an ambitious project. Uh, Six subjects, all grades, uh, working across the K-12 system with curriculum uh, renewal is, uh, in our history, I don't know if I remember a time maybe back in the 1920s and 30s, kind of the era of of uh, progressive education reforms that we've had such a massive change in curriculum. Um, so I think, you know, there's a couple of things. First of all, teachers are really enthusiastic about this. <clears throat> They're looking for this change. They're looking for renewal of curriculum and, uh, and it's long overdue. And we're in an age where things are changing faster and faster and 20 year renewal timelines don't work anymore on curriculum. So I think, you know, it's, it's an important thing to get right. 
Um, and people, I think, you know, when you say they're a little bit worried about the scale of change, um, I think that's fair. I think that the resources and supports the right professional development uh, in place for a new concept-based curriculum, it has to be there. If we're going to make this work, we really need to have the resources and the supports, including the time, right, which is really the big one for teachers to adapt to this. Yeah. So maybe maybe specifically, because you've been thinking about this, and I know you've been talking with people around um, the province and even and even other jurisdictions that have gone through a big curriculum shift. What tips would you give to teachers or to leaders to help implement this curriculum change smoothly? What do you think that we need to put in place, maybe at the both the school wide and the system level, to to help navigate that change? Maybe allay some fears, lower some anxiety. I think there's three things. I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to look at curriculum and and pull it out of a political or politicized space. You know, the back to the basic versus discovery. I think there's a real problem that, uh, you know, when I've talked to the Canadian research chair for curriculum studies in Canada, um, his comments to me were that, this is Dr. Bill Pinar, that where curriculum fails, it has been politicized. And, you know, all over the world, that's starting to happen with curriculum renewal projects from the United States to Chile to China, that they they get politicized. And instead of being about what society thinks is important uh, in terms of the, um, you know, what we should learn and 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 the focus of our of our school curriculum and programs of study, it becomes politicized and then it, it withers. Right. Because because of that. And it doesn't matter who gets it. The politicization just happens over and over. So I think the first thing is we have to say curriculum renewal is a part of what education systems have to do. We have to do it thoughtfully with lots of input across society. And I think this curriculum process has done that. You know, we we really do have, have I think, some curriculum that people are excited about in terms of the ideas and the concepts. But in terms of helping it go smoothly, uh, I think for school leaders and for teachers, we have to dedicate collaborative development time together, you know, and, and that collaborative time is to unpack the concept-based curriculum, what's new, what stays the same, uh, collaborative resource development, you know, like what, what are the resources that we want to select or develop together? But I think that collaborative unit planning, that collaborative lesson planning, that collaborative resource selection and or kind of co-creation, that takes time and resources. And I think if we can dedicate that time to really unpack it appropriately, I think that's important. And I would say a scaled intervention. So don't do it everybody all at the same time. But what we're really encouraging as the profession to government is do some field testing. Get this out at a, at a scale where you can try a few schools who can build those champions in that capacity and we can work out the kinks and then roll it out uh, into the larger system. And as it rolls out into the larger system, make sure that resources of time and support are there to do that collaborative planning. Yeah. That sounds like there's some really practical things. Cause I know people are starting to plan. Now you studied curriculum changes and I want to get a little bit larger. What, what hopes do you have for this particular change in Alberta? What pieces of the new curriculum are you most excited for? And, and, and maybe what pieces do you still have some questions about? So, you know, I think the um, the hope for this change is that the interdisciplinarity, the ability to work across disciplines, 
is something that we can get to with curriculum. You know, as a, as a, my PhD is in secondary education and that's at the University of Alberta and that's where curriculum studies um, has really for a long time had a, had a pretty big foothold in Canada. And I have constantly, as a former high school teacher, been concerned, concerned about the ghettoizing of curriculum, the curriculum being hived off and fragmented. So I think if we can get to a place where curriculum is seen as interdisciplinary at elementary, junior and senior high levels, you know, at the kind of K-12, I think that's going to be a really important change. And hopefully the concept-based curriculum will move in that way. Um, In terms of uh, questions that I still have, I think that we need to really unpack competencies and get a better handle on this. There, in, in my opinion, there's a lot of people talking about competencies that it, it's a little bit the emperor without their robes because when you really probe into it and ask them, they haven't thought through it in great detail. And, and I don't mean, you know, individuals at, at any particular level. I mean, just around the world. The more I travel and work with national agencies and, and uh, directorates of education and our own community in Alberta – there's a lot of talk about competencies, but people haven't really thought it through. And I also am not sure that it's something that's all that new. I think that we have developed competencies or a constellation of, of skills that create a competency for generations. I think that it's the questions now about, you know, when people say they are going to assess the competencies, like what exactly are you talking about and looking at? And I think we need a little bit more of an unpacking and and those are questions i still have um i'm also really excited about the foundational knowledge pieces for first nations metis inuit i think that that's a great uh, uh change and i would expand i would go more to the broader sense of globalization how do we how do we learn about much more inclusive classrooms ethnically from uh, a sense of uh you know students abilities to um a spectrum of of special needs or uh, um, expectations, you know, like how do we how do we build in these much more complex classrooms to meet the needs of all students, and what does that look like? I think that's that's another area that's exciting, but again, needs to be supported and needs to have resources and uh, and real real supports, not just we're going to do this without uh, without layering the supports in for teachers and and uh, principals, right. I want to touch on something that you mentioned in your last answer at the beginning of your last answer, and that's what some other countries are doing. Now, I know that you you seem to always kind of be on the move. Uh, I recently saw some pictures from Finland and Iceland and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and, and you're speaking with them about education. What have you seen in other places and other jurisdictions around curriculum redesign and what are maybe, you know, you can talk about how that relates to Alberta, but maybe what are also some of the most interesting changes that you've seen for improving student achievement through curriculum change in other areas? Okay. So it's interesting. I mean, the the ATA right now we're running uh, three international research projects. Uh, Five high schools were selected to participate with Finland on uh, a look at, you know, what makes a great school for all? That's the central research question. And it's a three-year project. Year one, they identify what makes a great school for all. Year two is, so what difference has this made in terms of not just student achievement, but education writ large, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just narrowed learning to performance. It's actually, how is this, how is this, 
you know, change the school culture, performance, cognition, retention. There's a whole range of measures. Um, and then the third year is, is how can we, uh, if this is working, how can we keep it going or what have we learned from our failures, right? What, what have we learned from the things that haven't been working um, with this research project? So we have one with Finland, which is five high schools. We have another with Iceland, an ATA research project that spans three years, but it's three small rural schools hmm. and really looking at what the needs are of rural communities and rural schools. Um, and then we have a third project, which is looking at transitions in diversity with New Zealand. And that's that's looking at some schools in Brooks who have a high um, diversity, rapid change and transitions and um, some of the uh, uh, needs that go there. So what we're learning um, there's two things I think that are really interesting, Corey, in terms of learning at this moment. One of them is the importance of play and free play in particular. And I don't mean this just for elementary kids, but having space where it's unstructured, um, free play that really builds those social emotional skills, that builds the resilience, that helps, helps to build self-regulation. I think that that's an important, you know, we, we have a, an interesting shift in our society in North America to hyper-parenting, the bubble wrapping of children. And, you know, when we were looking at playgrounds in Reykjavik and in Finland, um, you know, kids were jumping from boulder to boulder and, you know, doing all kinds of stuff in the natural landscape. We've started to see playgrounds have lawyers intervene where things are taken out for legal reasons that increasingly are maybe hindering development of of uh, play, right? Like, I mean, you know, we're we're almost interfering in ways that are going to be not very beneficial. So I think play as learning is something we need to do more work on. And I did a learning team about five years ago and worked in Fort McMurray after the fires with my colleague, uh, Dr. Michael Rich, a Harvard pediatrician up in Fort McMurray, with the notion of play as a way to build resilience. So I'm learning a lot about that. I think we're learning a lot about that. Um, and I think that's an important kind of finding uh, to, to this point. In terms of curriculum, I think it's really, uh, out of Finland, they have something called the wisdom of the heart. And uh, it's fascinating to me because the central question of their high school redesign and their curriculum is, what is left after students forget everything they've learned in school? So if you just think about that question, and they call it the wisdom of the heart, what is left after they've forgotten everything they've learned? It really goes to the heart of what's the purpose of education. What, is, you know, what are you left with after you walk out of school and forget the facts, for example, right? Um, and, and, and in some cases, it speaks to the notion of competencies as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Wisdom of the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, I know another pack. So... Uh, shifting gears just a little bit and I'm going to leave curriculum design. I, I, I know it's really prescient in, in Alberta, but um, another issue that you have been studying is class sizes. And um, I like how you, you, you approach it because you approach it from a research base that is grounded in practice. So in, in what you've seen in the research, if you were to make a statement on class sizes, what would it be? So I, I think that the benefits of smaller classes um, without question, outweigh the uh, the costs because you often hear, you know, 
uh, class size doesn't matter. That That's actually not what the research bears out at all. Class size and composition go together, no question, right? The, mm-hmm. the kind of complexity in the class and the class size have to be considered together. But we do know that smaller classes um, have a positive impact on student achievement. It narrows the achievement gap for sure, especially with low-income students, so lower socioeconomic um, or or students like uh, refugee students, or th- there's no question that the research on class size shows, um, you know, positive uh, impacts for student achievement. But I think it's more than that. I think it impacts uh, a whole other range of things, like the ability to manage increasingly complex behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, looking at um, a whole range of of uh, supporting kind of pro-social behavior and the ability to have students and teachers and students and students interact positively with each other. It's really hard with 41 kids if you have, you know, some significant uh, behavior challenges in those environments uh, without supports to manage the learning environment. And what we're starting to see is we're starting to see a lot of parents push back and say, hold on a sec, this is getting to be too disruptive. For, for my entire, you know, uh, entire class or my kids or, you know, I, I think we need to think a little bit about balancing out um, and, uh, and finding class size and composition with the right supports. It's certainly the number one issue right now in Alberta for teachers and principals. Uh, we're hearing it over and over and over. Yeah. I, I would agree. Yeah, class size is getting a lot of press and, and it seems to be, uh, I would say, and, and that's why I brought them up. It's the new curriculum and, and class sizes. Yeah. Well, and also, Corey, you know, I think just to also remember that in some places, like in smaller communities, class sizes aren't the issue in terms of size, mm. but it certainly is in terms of having combined classes and yeah. supports. So it's not just about the size, it's about making sure that the class size and composition are well supported. Um, because in some of the rural schools where they have smaller classes, but they might have three grades, you know what I mean? It, may, it might be, it might be other things that need to be looked at carefully, but it's certainly a factor for educational development. You bet. Uh, let's talk just a little bit about technology. Cause I know it's an a- another area that, that you have a lot of lived experience with and, and research in. And, and, and I want to talk in, in a large sense, so kind of a bit specifically. It's this idea that technology has developed faster than, ours, than our society's apparent ability to deal with it. And we've got this technology that's kind of disrupting these social norms, that's disrupting some of our health patterns, our well-being. And, and as teachers... I think it's even disrupting the job that we do and it's disrupting it faster than we can kind of come up with solutions or change to, to be able to deal with that. What advice do you have for teachers when they're navigating this, this very fast, quickly evolving world and, and how they might go about um, not dealing with that, but, but navigating it in a positive way? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's been really helpful for the profession of teaching in Alberta, we've been now we're, we're moving into our seventh year of a research partnership with Harvard Medical School and the University of Alberta. And it's called Good Alberta, Growing Up Digital, G-U-D Alberta. Mm-hmm. And um, we've, we've done uh, random stratified surveys of teachers and principals. 
Uh, we finished one last year with over 3,000 parents and 500 grandparents in Alberta to ask their perceptions. And we're in the third phase of this study, which is doing what's called momentary um, media use, interactive media use with students. We actually ping them over a one-week intensive moment to see what they're doing with technologies in school, out of school, kind of their whole life. And we're looking at a range of uh, cognitive, physiological, social, emotional impacts on it. So it's a, it's a pretty groundbreaking study um, that uh, 60 Minutes uh, is interviewing us about. And, and we're really trying to, to dig into, uh, within this fast velocity of change, this exponential growth of technologies, how do we manage it? Um, so I'll, I'll say a couple of things. The first is that technology is really paradoxical, right? There's no question. It enhances as it distracts. It connects us as it disconnects us. You know, people are alone together, right? But at the same time, we're using technology to connect. I mean, there's there's this paradoxical space with technology. It's 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 not like smoking, which we know has a really profoundly negative impact. It actually is different. It it has that double-edged sword dimension. Um, and people recognize that. So the real question that I have right now around uh, you know, teachers navigating technology today is how we really encourage three things. The first is being balanced. How do you, within the classroom, really get to those things that students need? So if if in the environment that you're teaching in the community, your professional judgment tells you that those students need to learn about technology to be able to engage with it, then how are you introducing that in a really balanced way so that they both have face-to-face and social-emotional skills being built as well as the ability to use technology like this with a podcast or create videos or, you know, being really kind of generative. So being balanced is important. Uh, A lot of teachers that I'm working and talking with are also talking to parents about not having technology at the dinner table and not having it in the bedrooms at night, because that's a part of being balanced. Kids are going to use technology in different places, but really being more balanced about when They have access to technology, making sure it doesn't interrupt relationship building at the dinner table and nocturnal screen time. Those are two that show negative impacts on cognition, readiness to learn relationships, right? So that's being balanced. Um, I think, um, you know, the other thing is being really mindful of how young we're introducing these technologies. You know, years ago when I worked in the ministry, when I worked with Alberta Education um, in uh, as a senior manager and and uh, advisor uh, around learning and technology, there was a big push for every kindergarten student to have you know technology in their hands as much as possible. And I'm not sure that the research is there developmentally that we introduce these technologies at really really young ages. I think young people need free play and they need other things more than they let's you know th- this idea that well we need to you know, get them up on coding and 21st century skills earlier. I don't, I don't buy that. Mm -hmm. So I think being mindful of developmentally, how much and when we introduce the technology. And then I think the most important advice is to be present. You know, teaching is about relationships, 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 and learning is about relationships, relationships, relationships. And if the technology is advancing and building and enhancing and amplifying positive relationships, that's good news. If it's distracting, disconnecting or pulling us away, then I have real concerns. And I think we need to be present, not absent in the space of technology. 
I think those are three really good points that, that, that educators all over can, can really use. So thank you very much. Let's get into education a bit more generally. Is there something that you think about learning or about education that you, that you really believe is true that most people or at least a large percentage of people would disagree with you on? So there's a, it's interesting. I mean, there's a, there's a huge development in something called adaptive learning systems. And it's the idea that technology can be used to what, you know, personalized learning, which, you know, is an idea struggling for an identity. There's no pedagogical research really around this notion, but it's adaptive learning systems are the, the kind of literacy and numeracy programs that take students through a set of tasks or, um, um, you know, exercises, and 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 it says it it basically gets to know your student better than they know themselves and makes predictions. I think that there's a lot of positive conversation about adaptive learning systems. Um, you know, everything from things like mathletics to Dreambox learning to uh, you know other structures like this that, that are really in the literacy numeracy space. Um, but I don't I don't agree actually. I think that these um, systems are very narrow. I think that they're not the artificial intelligence that is sold that they are. I don't think that they have the um, real ability to personalize learning like they say they do. And I think they're an overhyped promise right now. I think there's a real challenge. I wrote an article years ago called The Politics of Personalization in the 21st Century. And that article, The Politics of Personalization, was a critique of where this was going. And then I wrote a follow-up that went into the Washington Post um, called The Hype, Harm, and Hope of Blended Learning. And it was really not as much about blended learning, but about the kind of hype around adaptive learning systems and technology uh, taking over the teaching and learning process. And I think there's, I, I would disagree with where a lot of that's going. And I would say that that trend line is maybe turning because a lot of companies that have invested in this have started to go broke because learning is socially mediated, socially constructed. It's, it's not playing out the way they thought it was. Right. When you think of the term master teacher, who or what comes to mind and why? Um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm a fan of master teacher for a few reasons. It's been used in other regions to frame, um, kind of a fragmentation of the profession. And, you know, I, I have real questions over who is a master teacher and how does that designation come about? So when I hear it, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I guess I bristle a little bit because I've looked at it around the world, how it's, uh, you know, played out. And I'm not, I'm not really a fan, actually, of creating this designation called master teacher. Um, you know, I think people can get advanced education and training and learning and but you know what what exactly does that mean mm -hmm. Let, what, let's what come at it let's come at it of a different way i think that yeah. you're you're interpreting the question as that's a that's a term we bestow on people and right I think that the way that i ask the question or or the question that i have that is interesting to me is when you think of the best teachers that you have had experience with and the ones that have taught you informed your practice and said wow that person I believe has the qualities that make them an amazing teacher. Why, what did they do? 
and 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 if you even want to share who were they and 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 what was it that they did what were the things that they did that 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 made you see them as as an effective educator well this is a really interesting i mean the you know the the older i get the more i learn the more i reflect on things the more i realize that you know those people um come in all shapes sizes and styles over my entire life right um, I would say that, you know, my parents are teachers for me and, you know, what, what, what and how they taught me has been really influential. And I've had teachers um, in, you know, K-12 and in my post-secondary where I haven't necessarily agreed with them, but they taught me a lot, right? You know, they, they really did teach me and it wouldn't be something necessarily that I would, I would go in wishing for, um, but it would be something that I would say, you know, to answer that question is is really contextual. It has to depend on what I was learning and when I was learning it. And you know, were were they the right people at the right time? Did they did they give me an opportunity to discover more about myself? Um, you know, were they were they challenging me? Were they supportive? Were they you know caring? All those all those things contribute, I think, to um, to education, but I, but I always worry, you know, and, and oftentimes I've had this, you know, excellent teacher, let's define an excellent teacher. Well, you know, for you, uh, at a certain point in your life, an excellent teacher may mean something very different for another individual at the exact same point in life. Um, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it sometimes we, we try and create these kind of optimal spaces. I think what has been helpful in terms of answering this question. And I was on the um, the writing teams for the teaching quality standards, the revised and the new leadership quality standard. I think what we've tried to do there is really define what uh, what standards are for, for high quality teaching and uh, school leadership. So I would say those would be some of the things that over time we've, we've built on. Um, but I think it's difficult to say master or excellent teacher i mean i I, Mm -hmm. when i say i bristle that's because it's been narrowed down sometimes and i don't think it's overly helpful no i appreciate your answer phil it's complex and i think it speaks to the whole idea of the art and the science of teaching and and you need a multitude of different experiences and people because they all provide different things and if mm-hmm. everyone was a robot and adhered to this very strict thing, we, we wouldn't have the diversity of experience and it would actually lead to a less um, full and enriching experience in schools. So no, I know I, I appreciate your answer very much. And I think, you know, Corey, just another thing on this that I think opens up a really interesting conversation is how do we have high standards without standardization? Hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that, how do you have high standards where we can all kind of reach that, uh, that um, you know, standard of quality that we talk about, but we don't all do it lockstep or exactly the same way, standardized. And I think it's important to recognize that standards and standardization are not the same thing. You know, how do we learn... How do we learn without it being this scripted curriculum space, right? Because people confuse high standards with standardization. And I think it's a, it's a conversation we need to have more of. I agree. Yeah, that's a great question. Next one is, do you have a favorite success or a favorite failure that has helped you learn an important lesson or uh, an experience that you lived that you uh, think about often that informs your practice and your experience today? 
You know, it's interesting. I mean, that's a great question because, um, you know, I think as a pedagogue, I always believe that, you know, failure is really important to learn from those things that haven't gone well, as well as the successes. And, you know, that happens all the time. I mean, it happens, I think, on a daily basis for all of us. And if anybody tells you that it doesn't, then I'd like to meet them because, um, you know, if you're dealing with complex issues, you're going to have successes and failures all the time, right? One of the things that comes to mind for me is how you wade into different cultural milieus or cultural spaces and be open to making some missteps and, and challenges that, you know, I've lived in Tokyo, I've lived in Dubai in the Middle East, I've lived in Spain, I've spent... Um, several years teaching with the Blackfoot people in Southern Alberta. And I think in all of those experiences, um, you know, I've had cultural missteps or things that, you know, haven't uh, really been optimal because I've been looking through my own cultural lens or my own experience. But then in, in reflection, you learn that, um, you know, there's many paths to success in different cultures. There's many ways to approach things. And, um, you know, sometimes our ethno-cultural look or view from our perspective is certainly not always the right way. It's the way that we've experienced, but we need to look at different ways. And when I look at the new standards and the new curriculum with foundational knowledge for First Nation, Métis, Inuit people, um, it really, I think, for me, opens up that you, you want to be open to trying some new things and and having a having a really honorable intention and and good relationship with the groups that you're working with. You know, like the Blackfoot for me in the south, um, because they'll teach you along the way. And and as you make missteps and things, you know, don't work, you you learn from those and you move on. But all in the spirit of, you know, not just reconciliation, but really positive relationships going forward. And I, I think that's something that I've learned is to be open to, you know, being yourself, but at the same time, recognizing that you're going to make missteps and go for it. Yeah. Good. Have the confidence come from a good place. I love it. A couple smaller, well, sometimes they're smaller answers or faster answers. Um, do you have a favorite app website or, or another piece of media? Um, so, what's what app or website i i'm really i always really appreciate um uh john brockman's work he's uh the uh curator of edge.org edge.org and he was somebody who um kind of out of new york tried to bring together artists scientists philosophers to tackle really big questions and he, he's written a series of books um, and they're called the edge questions every year. So things like, you know, is the internet making us uh, smarter or destroying us? Uh, what to think about? What to think about next? Um, um, what will change everything? You know, they're they're big questions. And he goes to no, from Nobel laureates to uh, cutting edge artists to philosophers, and they each kind of give a page based on you know, the, the question of the year and the edge.org has those questions and, and those kind of ruminations. And I find them fascinating because some of the books, um, you know, the, the ones that I really find, uh, compelling in terms of the, um, uh, the conversations have always pushed me, you know, is the internet 
One, Is the Internet Changing the Way You Think? was one book that he edited, uh, and it's on his website. Uh, what to Think About Machines That Think is another book that he edited. And, you know, those two questions are really, in an age of artificial intelligence and automation, pretty profound. So edge.org would be a place I'd take edge. a look at. I love it. I've had multiple people who have issues with the next question because there's so many different things, but uh, they have too many. So let's narrow it down to one or two books that you quote, refer to, or give to others and you think are important. Oh man, is that ever tough, right? I'm constantly thinking and reading about different things. Um, so I, I really am uh, appreciating Yuval Noah Harari's uh, works. So uh, Professor Harari is an Israeli professor who wrote Sapiens, and excellent book kind of on the trajectory of uh, humanity uh, up to modern times. Then he wrote a book called Homo Deus that was looking at uh, kind of the blurring of carbon and silicon and where we're going next. And he's just finished a book called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century that uh, starts to tackle some of the big issues. But his writing is brilliant. And it's, I, would, I would recommend those three, those three books in a series, Sapiens, Homo Deus, and 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Next question. Do you have something that you do every day or most days that keeps you well and healthy? Well, I think we all struggle with finding balance, right, in terms of health. Um, I, I, you know, think that being outside is really important and being out in nature. I think that's a great uh, decompressor, you know, being able to go for walks. But I also am a big fan of uh, high intensity interval training or what's called HIT. Uh, and, um, and try and, you know, at least four or five times a week, uh, go to high intensity interval training and, you know, keep myself, uh, physically healthy. But I think in terms of mental health, it's having, you know, uh, positive relationships, whether it's family or friends, uh, every day, you know, just like, just like students in our schools, they need somebody every day that knows about their life and greets them and connects with them. I think it's the same for us. I think to be balanced, you need to have that, whether it's family, friends, or all of the above, as well as the physical, um, you know, you have to have that physical health. Cause I think we live in a pretty demanding time in education and, you know, it's, it's an important thing to, uh, to move away from sedentary space, uh, for all of us. Do you have an organization or a person who's inspiring in you? And this can be a long-term uh, or it can even be short-term. Someone or uh, organization who who's really inspiring you right now? You know, uh, my parents, actually. My mom and my dad. My dad's 89 and my mom's 86. And, you know, their, uh, their, um, their ability to be resilient among hardship, whether it's the you know, health struggles that they might have, or even their ability to raise, you know, kids on a ranch in Southern Alberta, like uh, all of my siblings and I, um, I really, I, I can't think of anybody right now in the world I admire more than, uh, than the ability for my parents to navigate uh, a lifetime of change. Hmm. That's a great one. 
So tell me about some of your next projects. What what are the problems or the questions that you're looking at, or or what are some of the the kind of information? What kind of the what kind of things can we expect from you in the coming days, months, weeks, years? Oh my gosh, what can you expect from me? Who knows? <laughs> what can I expect from myself? Right? Uh, you know, I'm I'm infinitely curious, so I'm I'm always thinking about different things, and I, I you know I think I'm trying to be a wise listener. Right. I'm trying to really listen to the profession, listen to, you know, people like you in positions of leadership, teachers. Um, I think that being a wise listener is important now. Um, you know, I I'm I'm following a couple of big trends. I'm looking at the impact that automation and artificial intelligence, if it actually is real, what that will have. I'm interested in the work of Timothy Snyder on tyranny, actually, and how truth and trust and democracy go together and how they're being somewhat undermined right now. Um, I'm, you know, I'm concerned about people not having a shared sense of truth and therefore not trusting uh, each other or, you know, research or things like climate research as we see it manifesting in, in the United States. And then that ultimately undermines democracy. And I think that, you know, you do get what you fight for. And if you don't fight for democracy and the the public system and the commons, you will get, uh, you know, a rise of things like neo-fascism. And I worry about that and I'm reading about that. And I'm also interested in the attention economy. I'm interested how, you know, everything now is about how many clicks can I get a person to do on a page, you know, an eight second attention span and the ability to hold people in their attention and have algorithms and apps that keep knocking on the door to get your attention. Uh, I'm worried about that growing economy around attention and the impact of distraction related to technology and what that means for everything from citizenship to learning. Well, that sounds great. Let's say people want to follow follow along with you on those projects. What are the best ways to perhaps follow your progress or connect with you? So I think, um, you know, I, I'm active on Twitter. So at Phil McRae, P-H-I-L-M-C-R-A-E, uh, A is anatomy is and, and Edward is the is the uh, Twitter handle that I have that people can follow because I tweet things as I'm thinking or you know there's photos of the play and Reykjavik and some of the visits to the high schools in in Finland so you can you can actually see into some of these things I've talked about uh, my website at philmcrae.com is another place that I post articles that I've written from the Washington Post or things that are in our professional journals like the ETA magazine or the learning teams uh, around play. And I, I did a special learning team on attention in the age of distraction uh, for parents. And so there's a lot of those resources there if they want to follow along. But um, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, it's just, I, I try and make my learning as transparent as possible. And it's one of the things I appreciate about your podcast uh, Corey and the work that you're doing too is, you know, trying to open up these conversations. Well, yeah, I want to. So uh, that would be, those would be the two places, Twitter and website. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. McCray. Um, really appreciate you taking time. I know you're a busy man and uh, sharing uh, a lot of your learning. And I know that it's going to help a lot of other people out there as well. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me and look forward to, uh, to seeing and, and hearing more from you in the future, Corey.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intersection Education Podcast. Before you go, I'd like to recognize that the land where this interview took place is a sacred place that has a long history of human existence. This land has helped people like the Cree, Salto, Nisitapi or Blackfoot, Métis, and Dakota Sioux live well for thousands of years. Let us continue to live well and respect this land.